Yeah, could everyone please take a seat? Okay, tonight I just am going to open in prayer. So. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for, first of all, the creating us and for what you have done, the lengths you have gone to call us back to yourself, to redeem us, and the good news that you have given us to proclaim. I thank you so much for the heart of these students, Lord, who have taken this time in their life to really sacrifice their time and money to know you. I pray that you would really use this final session, Lord, to cement in them the things that you want them to take from this class and that they really would be transformed by your truth and be eager to be the, your ambassadors. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So tonight we're going to look at a couple things. We're going to look at the plight of the lost, or what it's like to be lost, separated from God. Those of you who uh, have come to faith in Christ recently can probably appreciate some of these things, but for a lot of you who um, <clears throat> have grown up in a Christian home, I don't think you really can fully appreciate what it's like to be separated from God or what a, a great thing it is to be a part of God's family and have the truth. First, I'm going to look at what is our obligation to the saved. Remember how we talked about there seems to be polar opposite camps among Christianity? On the one hand, there's the <clears throat> drag them from the burning building, go and snatch them, use whatever manipulation techniques you can because you just need to to grab them, kind of the mindset that fueled the Inquisition, to just do whatever you can to make people become Christians. But it's very human-centered in their approach. Then on the other end of the spectrum are the people who rightly understand God's sovereignty in changing and converting a will, but they feel it's all God's decision. I don't know how many of you have ever wrestled with how does God's sovereignty and human free will. How does that all work together in our evangelism? Because I know it's really tempting when I'm under conviction of wanting to, to reach someone to tell myself, you know, God has already set the number of elect and this person, if he's a member of the elect, is going to be saved regardless of what I tell him. And if he's not a member of the elect, 
nothing I do is going to change it. So why should I make myself uncomfortable and interact with this person? Seems like a good question, doesn't it? <clears throat> Here's what really helped me. I got this from J.I. Packer. He wrote a book on this, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It says, a picture that has helped me so much to realize that God is king of the universe, that he has a secret revealed will. As king of this universe, he is completely sovereign and he works all things according to the center of his will. He's completely sovereign. But he's also given us free will and he's also our judge that we will stand before on Judgment Day. Our job is not to try to figure out what our king's sovereign will is. Our job is to find out what does God require of us and what are the judge's moral requirements for us. So when we make decisions, we don't try to figure out, is this God's sovereign will? We ask, what has God asked of us? Because we're not going to be judged based on God's secret sovereign will. We're only going to be judged on his revealed will. Does that make sense? So what is God's revealed will? Some of you look like you have blank faces. Did that not make sense? Any questions about that? The point is that God has a, a revealed will that we are going to be judged by. He also has a secret will that we have no idea what's going on. Who is elect and who's not elect? Is that in his revealed will or his secret will? It's in his secret will. And he has given us ob an obligation. When we are stand before God on Judgment Day, we're going to be held accountable for whether we obeyed or disobeyed God's revealed will. So when you look at it that way, it should never be an issue about whether we reach out to someone or not, because it's not up to us to figure out who's elect and who's not elect. So what does God ask of us in his word? What is our obligation to those who are unsaved? The first one is to be ambassadors of Christ. I was just talking to someone today who heard that most of us would rather be secret agents for God but we're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. Does anybody here remember what the three requirements of an ambassador were? What's the first one? To become familiar with the policies of the country he's representing. That's the first role of the ambassador. So as a Christian, what's our first role as an ambassador? Yeah to be familiar with what are, what's kingdom policy, what's the gospel message, what is God's requirement for eternal life. What's the second requirement of the ambassador? Citizenship. <clears throat> Citizenship, there's more to it. It has, some, it has something to do with the country that the ambassador is sent to. Yeah, and an ability to speak the language of the country he's dealing in. It would be no good to send an ambassador to China 
who didn't speak Chinese. Because even though he's so familiar with US policy, it's useless if he can't communicate US policy in the language that the Chinese understand. So in this analogy, what's the second requirement for the Christian ambassador? Yeah. So how does that affect how we interact with the unsaved? It kind of helps us to keep a, a bit of a bridle on our tongue and to kind of take a walk in the other person's shoes to understand how it'll best click in their minds and not necessarily how we think it should click in their minds. Exactly. Yeah. What was the thing, the, the one point in the communication talk that I was trying to get home. The only thing that gets communicated is what? What they hear. It's what they hear. The only thing that gets communicated is what they hear. So I know I've made the mistake after a witnessing conversation. I just review what I said and pretty happy with what I, the different aspects of the gospel that I covered. But it doesn't matter what I said, I could stand here and give you the most eloquent speech in Swahili, and very few of you would ever get it. So I could go home, I just knocked him dead with the most eloquent Swahili speech, and you guys wouldn't get any of it. Maybe some of you would, but most of you probably wouldn't get much of it. And in the same way, when you are witnessing to someone, you need to be able to speak in a, in a way that they understand. And how can you tell if they're receiving the message, what's the only way to tell if the message is getting across? Ask questions. Exactly. You need to ask for feedback. Say, what did you hear? Can you tell me? What, in your words, did I just say? What do you think a true Christian is? What do you think the requirements of the gospel are? What do you think saving faith is? I tried to explain it to you. You're not going to be able to tell just by trying harder to speak in their language or just trying hard to use different words. You've got to ask for feedback. And it's also so valuable that when they're posing their objection, because you may not be speaking their language either, and so you need to fully understand their language. So you need to say, this is what I heard you say. Is this what you said? Okay, so what was the first job of the ambassador? To understand the policies of the country he serves. Yeah become so familiar with what the gospel message really is. The gospel message has to have content. It really has to be clear because it's God's truth that saves people. It's not just looking popular. It's not just getting them to join your club. It's God's truth, and truth has content. It's God's truth that sets people free and changes people. You've got to really make sure you understand. Based on your homework assignment, some of you really have a pretty firm grasp on what the gospel is. Some of you really need to pay attention to your soteriology class next week. What's the third role of the ambassador? They need to present the policies in, in what way? Comprehensible. Comprehensible, but there's, there's more. It's the character of the ambassador. So he's got to present the policies in a way that reflects the values and character of the country. He's got to be able to have character that matches. 
Now that has some value in this analogy with the international realm, but it's so much more so with the Christian ambassador because we're not just reflecting the policies of Christ, we're also supposed to be the incarnation of Christ to people. We are the living Christ to people. It's Christ who's living in us. Where the Christian means those who are Christ-like or the followers of Christ. That's why we have all these commands to have the mind of Christ and to walk as Christ walked. It's really important as Christians that we are transformed by the gospel. This is why gospel presentations have got to be to the whole person. You can't just reach their mind where they can parrot back to you gospel truth. Being able to parrot back to you gospel truth does not save a person. You need to reach an, a person into a, a person's emotions. They need to feel love. They need to sense that you're sincere. You need to be able to win them over in the emotional realm, not just the intellectual realm. But you also need to reach their will. Because ultimately, it's the will that drew people away from God. It's the will that's in that enmity with God. The will, by the will, I mean that the seed of us that is making the choices, that has the, the free will. And one of the chief characteristics of someone who is saved is a will that is submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And a, a will that is submitted to the Lordship of Christ, submitted to the rule of Christ, where Christ is their boss, that is going to create a dramatically different looking person than someone whose will is still under the bondage of Satan, someone who is at enmity with God. So that the third role of the ambassador is someone who has the character. So that means that in our witnessing, it's not just enough to focus on what we said. In other words, you can't just Look at our, when we get to heaven, they're not just going to look over the transcripts of what we said, but we're going to see what attitude did you communicate in? Did you have a spirit of joy and love? Did you have a spirit of gratefulness? Did you communicate concern and love? It's the character. Those are the ambassadors. We're ambassadors. That's the first thing that Christ requires of us to be ambassadors for Christ. And remember, as the Bible verse said last night, we implore you as what? As though God were, as though God were pleading through us. Uh, I think it's, I can't remember now if it's First Peter or Second Peter, but the command is, to, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God, so that God may receive the glory. It's so important that those, every time you speak to those Anytime I speak to any group, I try to meditate on those two verses, those two concepts. And anytime you open your mouth to speak to a non-believer, realize it's only the Holy Spirit's power that is going to change a person's life, change a person's will. It's only the power of God, but there's something powerful about words that the Holy Spirit, I think, does infuse words with power, that there is the power of life and the tongue. People talk so much about how silence is golden, but I think we need a bunch more 
slogans that remind people how valuable speaking is, how much we need to speak life into people. Because there's a lot of people that say, boy, it's always better to be silent than to speak. That is not true. There's a lot of times where we're required to speak life into people. And this is what we're doing. But we cannot just speak life on ourselves, by ourselves. That's why to be a Christian means that your will is transformed to God. You are crucified with Christ. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross. That cross does not mean you've just picked up a lifelong burden, a lifelong thing of drudgery that you are going to carry with you. Anybody who saw a man carrying a cross knew that the person carrying the cross was a dead man. The cross was not a burden. The cross meant death. So when you're crucified with Christ, it means that old you that was at enmity with God, that wanted to live according to its own moral standard, that wanted to be its own idol, that wanted to be self-centered, that wanted to put the needs of self above the needs and the desires of God, gets crucified on the cross. Jesus, once one of the things the cross accomplished, set an example for us so that we should follow his steps. That's why we don't witness in our own strength. We are crucified with Christ, but we are also raised with him. We're raised to newness of life where we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We need to spend so much time in prayer, but keep those two things in the back of your mind. You're pleading with people as though God were pleading through you. And if anyone speaks, let him speak the words of God so that God receives the glory. If you do not have, if you do not care enough about the person you're trying to reach, say, God, all I can give you right now, I don't have the emotions, I don't have the courage, but my tongue belongs to you, and I will, I'm going to venture out in faith to start speaking your truth, and I pray that you would use my stumbling words, that you would take my mouth and speak your truth to these people. I don't have the strength right now, I don't have the desire, but because I am truly saved, because you are the Lord of my life, because my mouth belongs to you, I'm going to venture out in speaking this. Please take my words and give them power. And I just want to be your incarnation. I want to be the physical tongue that communicates your heart and your love for people. And I want you to receive the glory. So that's, when you look at it that way, it's encouraging. Because the pressure, some of the pressure is off. It's not all about how well you will perform in this conversation. It's just you surrendering yourself to God and letting Him use your truth, your mouth, to speak His truth. Second thing God requires of us is to implore people to be reconciled to God. What do you think it means to be reconciled to someone? What is that? What images does that word reconcile evoke? It's kind of like if there's a trust broken in your family, um, like that of with a child between a child and their parents. A reconciliation would be a recognizing the breaking of relationship and um, admission of responsibility for breaking the relationship and restoring it. Hmm. Yeah. What are some things? What are some other things that come to mind when you think of? A relationship that is not reconciled. Well, when I think of reconciliation, I always think of like when you're banking and you have your checkbook, and so you have to get your bank statement, you have your checkbook thing, and you 
go through and you make this right with this and make sure everything comes out correctly. So when something's not reconciled, one or the other person or both are not on the right page. Hmm. So reconciling is like making things right. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, that's uh, interesting. <laughs> I, I, I'm not entirely sure that's. I mean, you can find gospel. You can find, yeah, you can find gospel truth anywhere. I think reconciled uh, it refers more to a broken relationship, and so what do you? What do you think it looks like to be reconciled to God? So I hope I didn't feel belittled by that. I really appreciate, yeah. I, <laughs> that is one thing I commit to do. I never want to make anybody feel foolish for venturing to speak great. Thank you. So, but this, uh, what does it look like to be reconciled to God? So what are some of the things that br have broken the relationship with God? Sin. What is sin? <laughs> yes. Is reconciled after it's been made right, or is reconciled the actual brokenness of it? Uh, is reconciled the actual brokenness of it, or no, the repairing I mean, of the... Is reconciled after it's been made right, so we're reconciled with, or is reconciled while it's... I think being made right is one step of the reconciliation process. Okay. So that, uh, yeah. So is, is reconciled a verb or an adjective? Probably both. Yeah. As far as I know, reconciliation is a relationship term. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah. But I, I think the, the important thing is to hear is to see that there's a broken relationship. And I, I, a bridge is kind of impersonal. So there's definitely an aspect of how Christ bridged the gulf between God. So there would definitely be some valuable metaphors there. But I think this is what's important to grasp about this is that this is not just a mechanistic change that's happened, but there is an, an actual change in relationship where a relationship was broken, the relationship has been restored. Um, have any of you been through a relationship where you were separated from that person and then have been reconciled? Can, does anybody want to, Christina? So what caused the separation? Um, disagreement over another person, like a character of a person. 
And you've been reconciled? So what, what needed to take place for there to be reconciliation? Christina, did you have something? Yeah. Uh-huh. So when you're not reconciled to someone, you're both existing, but there's not communication there. There's not joy in the other person's presence. There's not What were some other things that were lacking, Christina, when you were not reconciled to your dad? Like that weren't happening in contrast to the joy of relationship that you have now that you're reconciled. So from that second talk, what does a reconciled relationship with God look like? What has to take place before there can be reconciliation with God? Forgiveness, admission of sin. There was a very key point that I was trying to highlight in that second talk that made it onto very few of your assignment papers. And it's something that I, I think is so much at the heart of the gospel and I really wanted to make sure that that got highlighted tonight. Because it's so critical, you get this. But what has to take, this, I really think it, this is what boiled down to the deciding factor between someone who's saved and someone who's not saved. What change has to happen in a person before they can be reconciled to God? Repentance. Now, most of you guys defined repentance as something to do with sorrow or admitting you were wrong. But biblically, there's a whole other aspect to repentance that is much more emphasized. And I really think it's the deciding factor of what repentance is. Does anybody want to hazard a guess at that? Yeah, someone got it right. They said it was a military term. I was very impressed with that because I don't think I mentioned that in my talk. But whoever put that there, do you remember what? It's a 180-degree turn and heading in a completely opposite direction from the one you were walking in. <laughs> wow. it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah, exactly. It's a military term that means you're going this way, and you turn around, and you start going this about way. Face. It's an about face. And it's also a complete change of mind. What's the mindset of an unrepentant person? 
I'm right. Who's God in the mind of an unrepentant person? Themselves. So what mindset change has to happen when, before there's reconciliation to God? Before the, the relationship of reconciliation can be complete? Because I, the, the reason I clarify this is because there's a lot of theological discussion about what comes first. Does regeneration come and then a person believes? Or does a person believe and then regeneration comes? And I kind of find a lot of those discussions kind of fruitless because regeneration is referring to God's sovereign working on the human heart that we can't see. And I, as much I, we, we need to be humbled by God's sovereignty and feel secure in God's sovereignty, but it's important that we are really focusing on what's our responsibility. But so, I just wanted to clarify that this, I'm not trying to make a theological point about what happens first, but what does have to happen before there can be reconciliation to God? Removal of self from A change of mind that says, you are now my God. That's going to be a pretty radical life change. And I really want you guys to seriously consider, because you know, it's so easy to just say, if repentance just means saying, I feel bad, I was wrong. That's pretty easy to do that. And scripture talks about a sorrow, um, something that, that just leads to sorrow, but there's a, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Um, it's not enough to just feel bad about your sins. Something needs to change. And that's what repentance is, where there's a change of mind, a radically different change of mind. That now, when you are evaluating your decisions, when you're deciding what choices am I going to make in my dating and relationships, when I make these choices as to how I live and to how I spend my time, who is now the boss? If you are truly saved, who is God in your life? It's got to be God. Because a reconciled relationship, in a, if, if the, a reconciled relationship means that the, the God-creature relationship is going to be flowing smoothly. And in order for that to flow smoothly and function naturally, who's going to be God? God is. So it's so important that you really understand because we have made becoming a Christian something that has totally neutralized the life change that God wants to happen. We've said all you have to do is say you're sorry for your sins, admit that you were wrong, and, and say and ask Jesus into your heart, which, very, which most people really don't know what that means. But it's a phrase... It's a something, say this prayer, admit you are sorry, and then God's going to give you this ticket. And completely missing from the whole content of that gospel presentation is what? Repentance. His repentance, the life change. Now, I want to be so clear. I am not talking about being saved by works. It is not the repentance that saves you. It's completely putting your saving, your, your faith. Faith is only as strong as the object in which it's placed. That's why Jesus said, faith, even as small as a mustard seed, can move mountain. Because it's not about how much faith you muster, 
It's not about how many much feelings of confidence or certitude you can muster. It's where you're putting your faith. It's only Jesus Christ who can save. But salvation is a gift. And you have to receive this gift. And this gift comes with requirements that are going to happen. This is why Jesus said salvation is costly and that you better count the cost before you just jump into this whole follower of Christ thing because it's going to cost you your life. It's going to cost you the control of your life. Everyone who's a Christian should have a symbolic gravestone that they point to. It doesn't have to be real, but where they use it to remind themselves when they want to be willful against God, no, I died. It is no longer me who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. And also, when the enemy wants to bring up your past and convict you and taunt you for the sins that you've committed before you, were, before you fully came to Christ, you can say, no, Satan, that man you are taunting is dead. That man's, that old man that had the sexual sin, that had the bitterness, that had the rebellion, it's gone. It's no longer that old, selfish man who lives. It requires a dramatic change. But to receive the gift of salvation means that you are reconciled with God. And when you're reconciled with God, God is God. If God is not God, you do not have a reconciled relationship with God. You are still at enmity with God, no matter how much you saying your chant or thinking you trusting certain facts, you do not have that reconciled relationship with God. But how often does that really make its way into the gospel presentation? And it's important to understand this, first for your own salvation, but also that when you are putting, when you are reaching your friends, that they understand. You, you cannot just say, well, I, I don't know, it's kind of like you say this prayer and, and then you like get this ticket and and then once, once you have this ticket, you just you really got to keep trusting the, the strength of the ticket. You, you, can't be, you can't be trying to do good things because that's legalism. You just you got to keep trusting the ticket. That's salvation. Is that going to make sense? Did you really get the gospel across? There is going to be a dramatic life change. And I really want you guys to get this because I think this is such a key point. And I really wanted to... Paint this in terms so that you do not have to wrestle with this whole faith versus works. Because it's not faith versus works. Like you heard in your James class, if there's faith, there will be works. You know, it's, it's so cool that God has both messages in the Bible. That we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that apart from if the, wherever there's a true faith, there will be works. Because we got to have the balance there, that if there's true saving faith, I want you guys to get this resolved in your own mind. Do you see how that we're not saved by works, but when we're saved, there's been a change. Because being saved means to be reconciled to God. Does, is that sinking? Is there any questions about this? It's a hard thing to grapple with. But it really, there really does need to be that dramatic mindset change 
that says, God, you are God. Now, what happens when you are trying to live according to God's standard and you're failing time and time again? Does that mean you're not truly saved because for a man who struggles with pornography and every time he falls back into sin, Satan says, you're not really, you don't really have your will surrendered to God because you keep sinning again. You must not be really saved. What's the response to Satan to a man that a man should give for a man who's in that position? Get thee behind me. But what's the, what's the truth? What should be the mental focus for a Christian who finds themselves repeatedly falling into sin and they start to doubt their salvation? That is definitely an aspect of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, there's more. What is the basis of your right standing with God? Why can you have absolute confidence to enter God's holy presence? Because how many of your sins were taken away at Calvary? All of them. To be in Christ means that you were given an exchanged life. All of your sins were put on to Christ Jesus, and he endured the consequences which was to be cut off from God. Jesus was cut off from the, sep with, from the fellowship with his Father. Jesus the man became sin for us so that we could in turn receive his life that was a life of perfection, an incredible transaction. We receive our account before God, it's as if we have never sinned. So we don't put faith in our ability to earn God's favor by works. We trust the finished work of Christ. But is that enough to leave it at there, to just say, because some people think, boy, you Christians must be some of the most dangerous people in the world because you think that no matter what you do, you won't have any consequences. You can do whatever you want because Christ has taken your sins away. No, but what's, what's the answer to that objection? Is that, did Jesus take away the sins of anybody who wants it? Yes, yeah, sort of. <laughs> does this gift of having taken away uh, sins, who does that apply to? To the person who has, has died with Christ. That's the person where this transaction has taken place, for the person who has died with Christ. And the person who has died with Christ has a new boss. You know what else is so amazing about Christ is he came as our Savior to not just save us from the punishment of our sins, but that's what mainly gets emphasized, is that Jesus saved us from the punishment of our sins. But you know what? He also saved us from our sins and will save us from our sins. He is a powerful Savior. And when you are struggling with your addiction, when you're struggling with your worthlessness, you're struggling with this depression or loneliness or worry, 
These are sins that you will not be able to defeat on your own. You need to trust your Savior. So first of all, you get the guilt out of the way by trusting the finished work of God. Conf He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. Confession means to admit that what we just did was wrong. We call sin for what it is. When you fall into pornography, the moment you have fallen into that again, you get up and you say, I feel terribly guilty. God, what I just did was sin. And I don't know what the future is going to hold as far as my victory over sin. But I do know that right now I call that sin. And as a helpless person, I plead with you to save me. And I trust not my own good standing to be ushered back into your presence, to be able to feel guiltless. But you know what is so hard for Christians to get? That we come to God completely undeserving of his grace. We so much want to earn part of it. I think part of it is because we want other people to have to earn it. We want to see ourselves as better than some other people. And we really want to think that we have deserved God's goodness to us, that we have deserved God's blessing to us. And it's so humbling when we fall down to realize, I have to come completely humbly to God with empty hands. Because so often we want to come with God, come to God carrying something in our hands that's saying, God, please reward me. Here's my good deed. Here's what I've cleaned up. Instead of just coming with completely empty hands and saying, I'm completely unworthy of your grace, but please accept me. When we come to that point of complete death and saying, I'm not worthy, only Christ is worthy, then something amazing happens because we have a reconciled relationship with God at that point where it's not based on our works. It's based on God's complete grace, his his loving favor towards us that's completely undeserved. But when we come to that point, we find reconnection with God. And this is where the sanctification comes in. It's when we're really reconciled with God, when we're enjoying the pleasures of God, that we find victory over the pleasures of sin. As long as you are feeling guilty, you will not find victory in your life. I don't care what you're guilty about. As long as you're feeling guilty, you will not find victory in your life, no matter how hard you try, because that guilt is going to spoil your communion with God. And it's that communion with God that is empowering. It's the fruits of the Spirit. It's the life change that God's Holy Spirit gives us. This is why guilt seems like, wallowing in guilt seems like such a righteous thing to do. It seems so humble. And Satan will just love for us to wallow in guilt. Because he knows that while we're wallowing, wallowing in guilt, we don't have that connection, that relationship with God. So when we really, with complete humility and empty hands, and finally acknowledge, I'm not worthy of your grace, but I receive your forgiveness, I receive your wholeness, come fill me. I want to be restored to you based solely on the finished work of Christ, which means the, what Christ, the sacrifice that Christ paid. I want that. 
you will find that restoration. Do you realize what a tremendous price Christ paid so that you could be free of guilt? And that when you choose to wallow in guilt, you are denying Christ the fruit of his cross. You're denying him the pleasure of something he paid a tremendous price for. You see, it's when you continue to fail in sin, you're not saved on the basis of your ability to stay repentant because you're going to sin. But the important thing is that there's a mindset that is always confessing to God, saying, yes, I admit that that was wrong. Take me back. Is there any questions about what I'm saying? I just feel like this is so much the heart of God's grace and the heart of his gospel that I really want you guys to be getting this. I really want his Holy Spirit to transform your lives. Any questions? Mostly, because a lot of our guilt is real. And guilt is also kind of like pain. Uh, just as we feel pain, that's an indicator of something's wrong that needs addressing. Guilt is kind of like spiritual pain that lets us know that something's broken in our relationship with God. And so whenever we feel guilt, it's, it's very important that we don't just try to stuff that feelings. It's re the guilt's real that it needs to be dealt with. It's not supposed to be just covered, and we don't just tell ourselves, no, we don't need to worry about that guilt. Whenever you feel guilt, it means that it, something needs to be dealt with. And it, yes? Isn't that what conviction is for? Yeah, but I think conviction and guilt are going are gonna to look similar. Yeah. So, and now, now we're getting into semantics here. Because, but there is going to be an initial conviction. And you know, oftentimes there is a difference between guilt and conviction. Because sometimes you get convicted in a way that's inspiring and it makes you really want this, that you see the beauty of it. And then you're right, there's sometimes there is just guilt. But guilt's a real part and you won't find victory over guilt simply by trying to brush it over it, or just say, be gone. Guilt's really an indicator that we need to come to God and be reminded of gospel truth, and also to see, is there something in my life that God's asking me to start calling sin, that I have just been thinking was fine? Is there something in my life that I need to start calling sin? Because once we confess that sin, then it's just that proof. <coughs> be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And what is that test we're supposed to take to see if we are, are really saved? Do we check our level of certainty? Do we check our feelings? Do we see just how much am I really trusting God? We check to see, am I surrendered to God? Is at the heart of me a will that is wanting God above other things? And if you find that it's not, what's, uh, if you find that your, your will is not at God, the way to fix it is not by trying harder, it is by 
putting your faith back on God and trusting Him. Yes, that, that is very powerful insight. Because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And people who are just under that condemnation, there is a condemnation, you're right, a guilt, that is going to just make you want to run from God's presence. And that does need to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. quote, unquote. And then you know that you're forgiven for that, but then you, you keep having these memories and these flashbacks to mm -hmm. dwelling in it, and mm -hmm. it's actually Satan. It that's is. Satan, yeah, that's Satan trying to look really good. Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what I think keeps guilt alive more than anything is our pride. Because we want to continue to say that I'm worthy and I'm wanting to earn this. And it's, the, it's this frustration with ourselves that we were not worthy of this. And that's what Satan, keep, Satan keeps telling us. You weren't worthy. And it's not till we agree with him and say, you're right, I'm not worthy. But I know the one who is. Uh, you know, if you, any of you are struggling with a deep-seated cycle of guilt, memorize Romans 8 and meditate on that. That was something that helped me so much. To really recognize, who is the one who's bringing these condemnations against you? Is it God? He gave us his son. Is it Christ? He died for us. Who is left to condemn us? It's only Satan. Um, we're running out of time very quickly. What is the state of those who are outside of Christ? I just want you to take a moment to realize. And you can go over this list. They're blind. The enemy has blinded their eyes. They do not see. They, they feel lost. They're without hope. To not to feel so depressed and to not see a way out of your troubles. What's so sad is that so many Christians continue to live under these things, even though they should be freed from these. They're captive. People find themselves repeatedly doing things that they do not want to be doing. They're enslaved. They're broken. They're guilty and under condemnation. And the guilt of an unbeliever is real. It's Satan. What Satan accuses people is he points to God's law. And it's a legitimate guilt that people have. And that's what makes Satan's lying, his condemning voice so effective. They're completely empty. And they're without meaning. It's just a purposeless life. I, I really wanted to spend more time on this because I want you to feel for those who are unsaved and how miserable it is to be without God. But I want to leave you guys with this. Make your faith real. 
First and foremost, make sure that your faith is real. Make sure that you are not trusting your own works, that you're not trying to be good enough, that you are completely trusting what Christ has done. But also that you have truly been crucified with Christ so that it's no longer you who live. And you know, in addition to that, you need to die daily because it keeps creeping up. And no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've sinned, it's never too late. The response in the moment when you're feeling convicted. You know, don't ever feel when you're under conviction or feeling condemned that you are not one of the elect or that it's too late. Because the very fact that you care, that you are feeling remorse, is proof that the Holy Spirit has not let you go. The person who have gone too far are the people who no longer care. They're the, pe the people who don't feel condemnation. I just want to remind you with just this fact that it's only God who saves a person shouldn't be something that creates apathy in us. It should create anticipation. It should be exciting because we do not have to be crushed under the weight of the responsibility to convert people. We know that it's God who converts them, but we go out with excitement. We want to see where God is working. And I wish I could have highlighted these, but use questions. The, I, I like the idea of just go fishing. It means throw out spiritual seekers that are just sensors, that are just trying to evaluate whether people are interested or not. And there's all sorts of great questions. Bill Heibel says, Someone says, how are you doing? He says, business-wise, okay. Family-wise, pretty good. Spiritually, things are going great. Which do you want me to talk about? I think that's a, something along those lines is a great question. Because if that person is hungry spiritually, it's an invitation. Another thing he'll do is say, he'll be jogging along someone, and it says, you know, if you ever want to know the difference between Christianity and religion, come talk to me. And he's had so many people... And he'll just jog off. He'll have so many people run up to him and say, wait a second, I thought Christianity was a religion. They're curious. I mean, other questions is, how has your belief or disbelief in God affected your life? What do you think are the most common misconceptions people have about God? See, questions like that are fascinating, and they discern where people are. The important thing is that you do not feel the need to convert people, that you are really making Christ real in your life, that you are a living witness to Christ's power to transform, that there is a difference in your life before you even open, that is visible before you even open your mouth. That's going to draw people. Then your goal is to not try to be just clever and creative, but it's just to have a surrendered tongue that is willing to speak whatever that's willing to look foolish, that's willing to have an awkward conversation, that's willing to venture out, because you're not worried, you're not worried as failure so much. When you feel like the burden of responsibility to convert people is on your shoulders, there's going to be this fear of failure. But when you know that it's God who's, con who's transforming people, it doesn't matter if you fail, because it's God who's doing the work. So you can have this confidence. I just want to speak the words that God gives me to speak. Well, I really wish I had more time with you guys. I have so enjoyed my time with you. I've really enjoyed getting to know your faces a little bit. 
I do love you guys, and I'm so excited about the spiritual potential in this room for kingdom growth, for how God wants to take you and do amazing things. God, what God is doing in this world is so exciting. His kingdom is advancing. God is not just letting this world go to seed. He's raising up a standard. The, the power, the Christ church is going to advance, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And you, he's going to use you. He's going to ask you to sacrifice your life, but he's going to use you in incredible ways. Because God is bringing shalom. He's bringing restoration. He's bringing peace to a world bit by bit, story by story, person by person. You know, I find so much comfort when I look at my family that has been Christian for generations. Whenever I'm wondering about the effectiveness of evangelism, and it's frustrating when you don't see people who are coming to Christ, to know that somewhere down the line, God did an amazing work of transformation, and I'm enjoying the fruits of that. And that's the same power that is going to continue to draw people into the kingdom. It's exciting. God is setting up his kingdom little by little now, and someday he's going to set it up completely, and you guys are his ambassadors to go out and offer the king is offering pardons to people. That is good news. That is exciting. He's offering free citizenship in his kingdom. He just asks that they surrender their life to him. And they should see in your life that that's not a drudgery, that what the king's ways for our life are what's best for us. They are what we would really want if we knew the facts. Our Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for every life in this room, I just cry out to you to fill them with your spirit. Give them a hunger to know you. I pray that your truths that are being taught to them at this school would be so implanted deeply with them that you would help them review, remember, to make these real, to put these into practice, that the enemy would not be able to snatch these life-changing truths. Lord, just give each one of them an amazing experience of your deep, overwhelming love for them and the awareness that you have that you are so worthy of trust, that you love them as a parent, you love them so deeply as a father, and you are there for them with every struggle, with every temptation, that you want to walk through them, that you are not the angry schoolmaster who slaps us every time we make a mistake, but a father who is there beside us, pulling for us to do what's right, there to pick us up every time we fall. I just thank you so much for your amazing truth and your love for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.